Scripture reading for this morning comes out of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, starting in verse 13 and going through 20. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. These are the Holy Scriptures. Thanks be to God. and billions of stars. Such beautiful sparks they are. Since the beginning of time, a prequel before dawn. Since the beginning of time, they are light on the run. And they sit so still, so far. You'd have to travel at light speed for four straight years to touch the nearest one. And don't even try to count them because there are over 300 billion in our galaxy alone. And they're big too. Almost all the stars you see in the evening sky are bigger than our sun. The biggest one we found, it's called V.Y. Canis Majoris. I have no idea who names this stuff. But it's a billion times bigger than our sun. That's one with nine zeros, by the way. Here's what's crazy. On a clear night, the human eye can see 20 quadrillion miles into the universe. What does that even mean? Stars, this transcendent electricity. Do you see that? Stuff like that's happening somewhere far away right now, and right now, and right now. It's always been happening. Before you, after you, forever. It's always been happening to remind us that we're part of something so much bigger than ourselves. And as beautiful as they are, are they the point? Are they an end of themselves or a means to greater questions? Are stars the point or do they point to the point? Is there a thing under the thing under the thing and perhaps not a what but a who? Maybe Dante was right when he said that love moves the sun and all the other stars. These have been the questions since the days of old, since our ancestors laid on their backs and connected them in shapes. And maybe this is the message of the stars guiding lights, if we are willing to get out of our heads, to stop looking down into battery-powered screens and to look up. Transcendent electricity. Stars. Stars. Millions and billions of stars. 
such beautiful sparks they are. So God, would you awaken us to uh, your presence, to the reality that you are, and I pray that you would bring us into a, a larger cosmic story of what's unfolding in all the universe that we get to play a part of. So this morning, God, would, would we encounter your nearness, your presence, your grace, your love, our being drawn into who you are, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, so good to see you, everybody. Uh, my name's AJ, uh, and if we haven't met, uh, Hello. Uh, I'm from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I was, I was, telling, uh, I was telling my old friend Jared, uh, he's not old, but we're old in our friendship. Um, I was telling him that uh, most churches that I speak at show imagery of like what's not out their front door, and you don't have to do that here. It's amazing. Like this imagery, I'm like, oh, that's, yeah, I just saw it on the way here this morning, right? It's amazing just to see that. So what an incredible thing to do. We don't, we don't have that in Michigan as much, so we show uh, other states imagery like your uh, Rocky Mountains, so thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> It's really good to be here. I, here's a question that I want to begin with. I don't, I don't want to assume anything because um, I'm a new guy here um, and I'll be out this afternoon so you'll not have to deal with me anymore. But I, I, I do want to not presuppose and ask this question. Can we go deep this morning? Is that okay? Um, Richard Foster had this amazing sentence in his seminal work, Celebration of Discipline, when he says, you know, the world's greatest need today isn't for like intelligent people, um, although that's good or like cool people or innovative people, all that's well and good. He said, the world's greatest need right now is for, is for deep people. People are thinking deeply about um, the good questions about life and beginning to live in accordance with uh, what they're discovering. And in America, I'll suggest this, that um, 50 years ago, God was largely assumed. And so the temptation was to doubt. In America today, God is largely ignored. And the temptation is to believe that we've entered a kind of cultural moment where the longing for something transcendent is returning. And I think we're discovering that the career ladder isn't enough and that our consumer habits don't quite satisfy like they once did. And that more technology has only led to increased anxiety. Do you remember the fax machine? Like when that came out, everyone thought, finally, we can rest, right? Um, and, and I think many are beginning once again to ask the great questions, curious if maybe there is something beyond the stars. And maybe what you're going to hear for the next few minutes isn't actually for you, but it's for your colleague, for your neighbor, to better understand the cultural moment that we're in, that we can begin to sort of say, okay, that's the frame of the 21st century American life. How do I actually live within that frame, given my neighbors and given my friendships and given my family members who are just now moving out of cynicism and beginning to say, maybe there is something beyond our grasp, something beyond that maybe just knows our names and maybe calls us the beloved. There's a haunting suspicion, I think, that's returning to the 21st century Western Hemisphere. And the haunting suspicion is that perhaps the cosmos is, in fact, enchanted with the divine, and that it's not all just probability and a collision of molecules. Transcendence is all over our films. I don't know if you've noticed the emergence of Marvel and Arrival. Even movies like The Greatest Showman, The Wrinkle in Time, Stranger Things, The Walking Dead, everyone's searching for, for narratives that are pushing us 
beyond ourselves, like almost like something pushing us beyond our grasp. But there's a, a return in the 21st century post-secular West to sort of longing for something greater than what we can manufacture, longing for something that might just be beyond our grasp that's going to take a kind of faith leap to move toward. I think our culture is obsessed with transcendence. And in major cities in America, like Denver, steeped in a post-secular worldview, the big questions are returning. Is there a God? Is this God relationally available? Does this God have a name? I love the, uh, the chilling phrase by the agnostic writer from London, Julian Barnes, where he says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. So I'm suggesting what is beginning to break through in our culture once again is a sort of opening to transcendence, an opening to possibility. Now, what this doesn't mean necessarily is an opening to Jesus. Like, this doesn't mean, okay, great, Christendom's returning. That's not what this means. It just means that there is a new sort of understanding, a new longing for something beyond the self. And so what does this have to do with the text this morning? And that kind of a cultural milieu, that kind of a cultural moment, what I want to suggest is that prophets of all kind are rushing to fill the gap with their own ideas of what this transcendence could be, of what this life means, of what this God or these gods or this meaning beyond the cosmos, of, of trying to, to fill in the blanks as to what it could be to chase that kind of a life down. An uptick in podcasts and books and sermons and social media posts and tours. All of these voices trying to fill in the gap and capitalize on the transcendent moment. And those are our prophets for today. The prophets from all over that are trying to define what life now means as we sort of wake up from a technological hangover. What does it mean to really live fully human? I want to define prophets this morning um, as simply this, because there's so much sort of confusion around this. I would simply say prophets are this, and I, I steal this definition from an author named Mike Breen. He says, prophets do two things. They foretell and they foretell. Those are the two vocations of the prophet. And, and some prophets try to define the present moment. They're foretelling. In other words, they're trying to make sense of all of the chaos of life, all of the sort of confusions and all of the particularities of life. They're trying to make sense of it into a cohesive whole. They're foretelling what is happening in our time, right? And often it's insightful when you feel like someone is, is, has such an altitude that they're trying to, to sort of take all the scattered data and minutiae and actually wield it into a cohesive whole where you're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense to me, right? You know people like this? There's another kind of prophet as well, not just those who foretell, but those who foretell, who often paint a sort of picture of the future, right? Some prophets do both, foretell and foretelling, both present and future. Let me just walk us through our text. I just want to hit a couple of these verses, and then I want to say just two things, and then we'll close and sing a little bit more before we leave this place today. Matthew 7, follow along in the sacred scripture if you have it. It'll be on the screen if not. Um, here's the words of Jesus. He says, um, enter through the narrow gate. Now, I, I want to, there's so much cultural baggage that we sort of import into every text based on where we come from and our tradition and even where we are. I, I, I think when he says enter through the narrow gate, I think it might mean something like this. Hey, truth is not always obvious. 
Like truth is often something that you might miss if you're not looking for it, right? The reality might not be in plain sight. It's buried under layers of cultural illusion that culture upon culture upon culture and profit upon profit upon profit has built a kind of understanding of the world that when you're looking for truth, it's, it might be narrow and hard to find. It might not just be so obvious that the path that leads to the kingdom is riddled with paradox, things that you wouldn't have thought or assumed. In other words, truth sometimes takes some searching for before it's found. I don't think this is meaning that God's making it hard for us to find him, as if God is in this sort of divine game of hide and seek. I think it means the world as we know it has drifted so far from reality that the kingdom of God is really hard to find. And so there's going to have to be a sense of agency and longing and desire and and passion to seek what is real amidst all of the noise. And the text goes on where Jesus says, For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Here's what I don't think this means. I don't think this means that God only cares about a few people. I think rather it might mean that in this world that we're in, there's not very many people who are interested in a crucified God. That's not like a popular thing. That's not like trending right now on Twitter, is where can I find the God that loses in order to win, right? And how do I chase that pattern in my life? Philippians 2, we all want victories, narratives of victory, where it's just one success after another. And that's not actually the pattern of Jesus, these deep troughs that lead to a kind of new height. The text goes on to say, watch out for false prophets, and here's why watch out for false prophets, because in every environment in which history has always find herself, found herself, including this one, false prophets fill the gap to sell you their vision. That's what it means to be a, soft pro- a false prophet. It's to capitalize on the cultural moments, often for prophets, different spelling of prophet, right? Often for some sort of name building, often for something else in a very different direction, often for the celebrity culture that we find ourselves, the church herself has bought into. That's often how we sort of begin to recognize these things. They come to you, here's what Jesus says, they're going to come to you in sheep's clothing. Um, in other words, they're, they're not obvious, but inwardly they're these ferocious wolves. Now, this is, this is, this is, um, this is offensive for a postmodern, sensible human living in the 21st century West. Jesus is offensive, And he goes on to, I think this is the challenge of this part. I think Jesus is saying, hey, listen, um, truth seeker, it's going to be hard for you to discern what's true and what's illusion. It's going to take some work on your end not to be so naive. Because you sometimes won't know what's true from what's false. And you'll sometimes buy into some false vision that isn't actually from me. That it's not obvious. That false prophets and true, true prophets, prophets, Jesus is saying here, they, they both appear the same. And you have to understand to begin to learn to look for motives. Like they're driven by different things and they're pointing toward different ends. And by their fruit, Jesus says, you will recognize them. In other words, often it's only after someone's ministry plays out that you can discern fact from fiction. You can see what's the fruits of this person's ministry or these people's ministry. Um, then he concludes by saying, do, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
thus by their fruit you will recognize them. And so I think here's the question that I just want to sit on for a few minutes before we close is, is this. Um, what do two false prophets look like in our, our church context today? It would be good to discern that, particularly in a moment where institutions, particularly the church, has a lot of suspicion from the world because of the ways we have mismanaged our authority, the ways that we have politicized and manipulated authority, ways that we've covered up the authority that we had to help raise children and exploited that for sexual purposes or name, pick your poison. There has been so much that is hacking at the root of the foundation of the integrity of the church. So how does the church wake up to discern what is fact from fiction? I think that would be good. Um, I think the first is this. I think we have to become aware of false prophets of duty. False prophets of duty. And that'll be on the screen. One of the things that false prophets of duty, I think one of the ways we can discern that in a religious context is false prophets of duty always sort of shift us from abiding to attending. This idea of filling in programs, this idea of doing sort of the, the attending thing, filling seats, voices that call you back to the what but can't articulate the why, that are just like, hey, come in, do the thing, check the box, and you're in. And what happens with false prophets of duty is I think conservatives are often, the way in which conservatives' brains are wired, they are often sort of vulnerable to false prophets of duty that just do your part, do what, do what you were raised to do. You don't have to question it, just do it, just sit in that, right? I think large amounts of well-intended Christians sitting in churches on Sundays in the greater Denver area are doing it out of a sense of duty, right? But we just show up, that's, that's what we do. That's what we've been asked to do is just fill seats and give when the budget's down. And, and hopefully this is all gonna be just fine. And what happens is this, there's sort of an equation that happens in any local church. As the sense of duty, as shoulds, as that goes up, the sense of presence goes down. The sense of longing and passion and conviction wanes when all you are asked to do is fill seats, check boxes, and come back next week. That's a religious spirit that doesn't actually open to the full presence of God. Where so many people in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I live in pastor, are simply showing up on Sunday mornings to put in time in churches all over that city and then hoping to get out in time just to beat the lunch crowd, right? I was recently in a conversation with a worn-out Christian who said to me this, it'll be on the screens. He said, I, I think for a lot of Christian folks who grew up in the church here, it's a struggle because so much of our faith was built on people will know we are Christians because we don't, and insert, he gave some examples. He says, people will know we're Christians because we don't drink and we don't have premarital sex and we don't believe in gay marriage or we don't smoke weed or we don't say blah, 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 blah. It just went on and on and on. And he wasn't saying like, hey, those things are well into good and do whatever you want. He was saying rather like, like, where can we drink from the well of life rather than attending the fences of duty? Like, is this a community that is defined by your fences or is there a well that we are calling us to centralize our lives around that leads to a kind of vibrancy where the kingdom of God flows, where the fruit of what, what Jesus is talking about here of true prophets is welcomed and that the presence of God is the most desirable reality in our midst. For Christians, 
the aim of this move toward transcendence, right? If the culture is moving back toward transcendence, for the Christian, that aim is the radical, transformative presence of Christ in our midst, not attending functions that keep us in good social standing. If you find yourself here back at church and you don't know why, but you know what I'm talking about, and it's just not life-giving, this sort of what you inherited growing up. And you just somewhere along the line chucked it. It was like, who needs that? I just, on behalf of pastors all over the world, I just want to apologize for leaders like me that are more interested with nickels and noses and meeting budgets and attendance forms and filling in programs than we are designing a community where the presence of God is the center of our existence, where we take risk and we long for the spirit and we long for life and more life and for grace and for vulnerability. And so I just want to pray this confession over you. This might not mean anything to you, but if it does, receive this from someone that works as a pastor in a church where I would say, dear guests, we the followers of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, confess that we at times attempt to shrink God down to our size. We are truly sorry. Dear guests, we convince that we at times are far more interested in looking down in judgment and unforgiveness rather than looking up in awe and wonder, rather than looking in and to confess our own hypocrisy, and rather than looking out and caring for the oppressed. We are truly sorry. Dear guests, we confess that doubt is real, that mystery is real, and that we sometimes try to fake answers rather than sit with hard questions. We're really sorry. Dear guests, we confess that taming God in the name of religion and apologize for ways we restrict the mysterious ways of the Spirit's presence to fit our worldview. We're really sorry. And dear guest, would you kindly be patient with us? We are all, you are always welcome here. Always feel free to come and doubt with us and also re-believe with us as we gather together to seek the mystery and wonder of the God who was made manifest in Christ Jesus, the crucified and resurrected King who will return and make all things new. One of the things that Ryan said to me last night over dinner is how he longs for this community to become a community where we practice together, where we don't just attend, but we live life in such a way that we attend toward the presence of God, and we show up with practices that help us actually move into encounter the divine. And so I affirm that, and I think that's beautiful that you have a pastor that wants to move you beyond a sense of duty and attendance. Second, and the last prophet I'd say that I see a lot in the church today, and I think the one that grieves me most, um, are prophets of deconstruction. I don't know if you've experienced this yet here, but you will. It is happening everywhere right now in the U.S. And the shift with false prophets of deconstruction If the shift of of false prophets of duty was the shift from abiding to attending, the shift for false prophets of deconstruction is from abiding to ambiguity. Somehow moving away and distancing ourselves from the incredible mystery that we have discovered in Jesus. I cannot tell you how many podcasts I hear right now where speakers are gaining large audiences through simply tearing things down rather than building anything up. Where someone is very articulate 
about what they're against, but cannot precisely name what they're for. Where the foundation of love is rooted in an ambiguous sentiment rather than the specific name of Jesus. And like duty, I think deconstruction is to move away from seeking the presence and relying on doubt as one central value. And don't get me wrong, and this is so true for those I find in their 30s and 40s, who growing up weren't given permission to doubt. It was almost like that's wrong. But here's the thing. Doubt is real, but doubt is never the goal. Like the aim of our faith isn't to doubt. The aim of our doubts is to move back toward trust. And that's not certitude. That's a very different thing. Doubt is always validated as part of the journey. If you're here this morning, you're like, yeah, I'm tired of like cheap answers. And I'm tired of people thinking they can like solve everything and all the mysteries of the universe. There's like a place for doubt and mystery and transcendence and that we don't know, but we're going to just sit in that anyway and it's hard. But here's the thing. Doubt is always validated as part of the journey, but doubt is never celebrated as the destination. There is not one New Testament passage that celebrates doubt. It's valid, but it's not the goal. It's not the aim. If you don't know what I'm talking about yet, you will. Trust in the presence within the midst of our doubts is the aim. Allegiance to the kingdom. Loyalty. This is the meaning of faith. This is the meaning of pistis. Faith doesn't mean, doesn't mean like the absence of doubt. It certainly doesn't mean like the eradication of, or, or it, faith doesn't mean like, oh, all things will become certain. Faith means that we trust into the mystery of what we know. There's this, um, there's this beautiful church in Paris called uh, St. John St. Louis. They just say things better. <laughs> and they had this, uh, this artist install this light exhibit. And the artist did this. So when you come in, this is what you see. You come into the side and you go to the center. You're sitting at the aisle looking down toward the altar. And you see this big question mark. And the artist beautifully validated the reality that we just don't know everything. And that we come to church not because we have all the answers. Because doubt is real. And uncertainty happens. And you walk in with tons of questions about God. Some of you did this morning. All of us did this morning, especially if you're in a time of pain. You walk in with questions about God, the divine. Who is Jesus? Is God real? Can God be trusted? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Here's what happens. As you walk that aisle toward what's signified symbolically as the center of the church, which signifies the, the presence, the, where God is most present in the Eucharist there, what happens is the light ends up looking like this. And as you get closer and closer to the center, to the well, and you move further and further away from the outside walls, what you realize, it's not that the questions, the mysteries, or the doubts go away, but it's that they get resized in the presence. That as you move toward the presence of God, we experience something far greater than our doubts. We experience divine embrace. And it doesn't solve all of our questions, 
but it puts them in a context where we can hold them and still believe and still walk forward. If conservatives are vulnerable to prophets of duty, progressives are vulnerable to prophets of deconstruction. It's the way our brains are wired. Doubt is real. Doubt is hard. It feels like a never-ending valley that breeds cynicism and critique and joylessness. And I say this because I was once the guy who went around trying to pop everyone's faith balloon. And I realized I had a lot to say against what people believed, but I didn't have much to say about what I believed. It was just easier to critique other people's beliefs than to have the courage to muster a faith of my own. You cannot detour deconstruction where you tear what you inherited down, right? You cannot detour deconstruction if you want to grow. But you cannot live in it forever if you want to flourish. Deconstruction is kind of like Las Vegas. You should drive through it, but you don't want to make a life there. Deconstruction without eventual reconstruction will lead to a life of demolition. And it will impact the lives and the relationships of the people around you. Three quick things. Number one, if we were to become uh, proficient and um, skilled at discerning what is true and what's false with the voices that are coming toward us in life, the prophets, I think the first thing is abide in Jesus. Figure out what that means for you. What does John 15 mean? Because it seems to be that this was Jesus' famous last words before his death. If you miss everything in the ministry and life and teaching of Jesus, abide with me, he says, and then you will bear good fruit. So go figure out what John 15 means in your life. May that become the central pursuit of your existence. Number two, know the scripture. Tether yourself to the words of God, so that you can discern truth from pop philosophy, truth from false prophets. Tether yourself to the scripture. Know them. Have them in your heart. This Sermon on the Mount, I remember we memorized it um, with a group of, when I was in, in ministry, gosh, 15 years ago. A friend of mine was here yesterday at the Enneagram event, and we did a stupid, we got tattoos about it. Um, and so all these guys around the country now, we've all spread out. We have these matching tattoos about becoming the teaching. What does it mean to live the Sermon on the Mount, right? And the third thing is this, um, walking community. These are all like basic. These are not rocket science. But do you have a few people that really know you that walk with you, that can laugh when you laugh and mourn when you mourn, and that you can share the high lows and those and know that they're going to stick with you, and they're going to walk with you, and they're going to be with you in your journey. I have found that fewer and fewer people in the church can say yes to that question. And that's a hard moment, but it's an opportunity. I think if the church can figure out these three things, she'll have an incredible witness for the world of what it means to name this transcendent and to move in to God. Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it, but 
Small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. The gospel of Jesus Christ.